Father, we praise you that your word is living and active. Thank you that there is salvation in your word. The voice that calls Jesus from the grave and the voice that calls us from spiritual death to life and one day from physical death to life. We pray now that you would open our eyes so we can see the truth of the gospel in your word and see what it means for us in our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you like at saying and hearing the hard things? We live in a world that finds it increasingly difficult both to say and to hear difficult things. It can be challenging at work, giving feedback to somebody. You know, the boss doesn't always want to say it. The employee doesn't want to hear it. Uh, references for employees moving on to another company are now regularly restricted to the facts only. Dates of employment. No opinions on the person's suitability for the role in case they get sued. It can be difficult to say and hear hard things in friendships. I think she has a problem, but I fear that if I say anything at all, it will spell the end of our friendship. I don't want to risk that. Even Strictly Come Dancing suffers in this area. If a judge says anything remotely negative, what does the audience do? Well, they boo, of course. And yet, maybe if we're honest, we know that sometimes hard things do need to be said and they need to be heard. Not just in Strictly, but in all of our lives. When you're sitting in the consultation room with the consultant, of course it would be great to hear that everything is fine, but if it's not, it's better to get the diagnosis clear and accurate so that you can get the right treatment. And there are times, aren't there, when the only reason that we're brought back from the brink of some destructive behaviour or addiction is that somebody loves us enough to challenge us and to stick with us when we protest and to say the things that need to be said. Now, something a little bit like that is going on in Ephesians chapter 2. We've been hearing in Ephesians about God's great master plan centering on Christ, how the way God has chosen to unfold his Christ-centered master plan here and now is through the new community that he has formed, through the church And at the end of chapter 1, the description of the place of the church in God's plan has reached a kind of crescendo. God's power, the same power that was at work in Christ to raise him from the dead, that power that seated him in the heavenly realms and put everything under his feet, that power is available to you, to the church, to Christians. He's seated in the heavenly realms and you, you Christians of the church, you are his body, he says, chapter 1. Verse 23. So in some sense, you Christians, the church, are already with Christ in the heavenly realms because that is where he is, and so that is where you are, Paul says. And we hear that and we think, well, okay, that sounds like it makes us pretty special. Over the summer, we found ourselves at the Clacton Air Show, which is quite an event, I have to say, and included the Red Arrows, Uh, I I guess you may well be familiar with them, but if you're not, they are the Royal Air Force Fast Jet Display Team, doing all kinds of incredible high-speed stunts and even writing the number 100 in the sky in coloured smoke 
for the 100th anniversary of the RAF. You know, these guys are the best of the best of the fast jet pilots in the RAF. To get in, not only do you have to qualify as a, a regular RAF pilot with, pilot with fast jets, and you know, there's about 500 of those in the RAF at any one time. Think how difficult it is to qualify for that. Think how many, people, how many people would love to be one of those 500 pilots. But there are just nine red arrows. So to make it to that level, you are very special. You are the best of the best of the best. And it, it might sound that that's how it works with this new community that is the church, that is Christ's body. You know, it's the idea that we are spiritually the best of the best. These are the guys that get to be in the heavenly realms with Christ. The ones who make it in the selection test for loving God and loving your neighbour. You know, and sorry guys, if you don't quite measure up, you know, a place in the church is not for you. Is that, is that how it works? Well, Paul begins chapter 2 with a very clear, fairly blunt, no. That is not how it works. If you're a Christian, if you're in God's people, you need to hear some hard news. You need to realise that it's not got anything to do with your spiritual ability to make yourself acceptable for belonging. And if you're not yet a Christian... Well, understand that that isn't what God is looking for. He's not looking for spiritual perfection before you can belong. Because Paul is saying here, as he writes to Christians, he's saying, none of this is down to us. It's all down to God's action in Christ. And the word for that that we see in these verses is grace. We're saved by grace and grace alone. And the thing is, understanding that we contribute absolutely nothing doesn't make God's rescue less glorious. It makes it even more glorious than we could ever imagine. And you might be wondering why we had that reading from Judges. But the point there is that you see in the, in the Old Testament narrative the same idea being played out in the lives of the Israelites. Of the Israelites. God is saying, no, you can't go and attack the Midianites with 22,000 men because then you'll think that it was somehow down to you when, you when you are victorious over them. So we're going to reduce your numbers. First to 10,000, no, that's still too many. We're going to get them right down to 300 based on some random thing to do with how you drink from the stream of, uh, streams of water. Just to make it clear that there is to be no boasting in yourselves. This is the Lord's victory. And Paul is making a very similar kind of point here in Ephesians chapter 2. So let's see how that, how that works. How do we... Fit. How do we take our place in God's Christ-centred master plan? Well, first of all, we need to see in verses 1 to 3 our spiritual condition that we are not sick but dead. Not sick but dead. As for you, he says, he, he's talking throughout these verses, as we said, to, to Christians, in fact to Gentile Christians, this is what you were like before you came to faith in Jesus. How serious was it for us before God? Were we very, very sick? Well, no, we were not just sick, but dead. You see that? You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, obviously, on a daily basis, we don't feel particularly dead. But this is about our status before God. You know, is the point that we're just sick and weak and lazy and in need of a kind of spiritual caffeine boost? 
That, that's actually sometimes how people in church history have understood grace. It's a kind of caffeine boost to get us back in the game. The people who think of, of grace like that would be quite happy to say there is no salvation without God's grace. And this is kind of how the, the medieval Roman Catholic Church was, was talking about grace before the Reformation. They're quite happy to say, yeah, you know, we're saved by grace. But what they meant by that, and what, and what people throughout church history have meant by that, is, is it's a bit like me saying, there is no work at my desk without caffeine. So what am I saying when I say that? I'm saying I'm too weak to do this by myself. Left alone, it will never happen. But grace will help me achieve my potential. That's not the view of grace and the view of human beings that Paul gives us here. See, coffee doesn't help dead people. Ask my family what I'm like straight after I wake up in the morning. I can't talk. I don't want to talk, but I'm definitely alive. There is, there is a pulse. <laughs> and, and after a cup of tea and a cup of coffee and some breakfast and a shower, I may even be in a position to say a few words. Paul says, you weren't even like that. You were dead. Nothing for God to work with Nothing for him to cooperate with. More than that, he says, we, we, we were disobedient because we were enslaved. So look at that in verses 2 and 3. The, the ways that you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. We're enslaved. Can you see we're enslaved to the world? We're enslaved to the rule of the kingdom of the air. That's the devil. And we're enslaved, verse 3, to ourselves, to our own sinful natures. We sometimes treat sin as if it's just a superficial kind of problem. Uh, a couple of weeks ago we talked about how it's like trying to, you know, we, we think of it as just sort of taking the olives off the pizza. Don't like olives. Take off, the olive. Take off the olives and you're left with a pizza you can eat. Now the whole point is, it's a fundamental problem. You've got to get rid of the whole pizza, start again. We're stuck in this situation and we can't get out of it. Now we might say, well that's not how it feels to me. As far as I'm concerned, I'm free, I do what I want. That's what it feels like. I don't feel sort of enslaved in the way that these verses talk about on a daily basis. You talk to your friends at work or whatever, and I'm not, I'm not enslaved, I'm perfectly free to, you know, I choose my actions. And the Bible and Paul say, well, that is exactly right, actually. We do all do what we want, but that is the problem. Because it's our desires, and it's the things that we want that enslave us, verse 3. So if I explode in rage or if I push others out of the way so that I can succeed or whatever it is, well, I am free in that it's not somebody else doing those things, it's me. And in the moment that those things happen, I, I do actually want them to happen. That's why I'm doing them when they happen. I'm, I am acting according to my desires. And Paul says, yeah, exactly. And that is the problem. See, those desires have enslaved me. We're like somebody who has built a house around themselves brick by brick. 
a house with no windows and one door, and then we've locked the door and we've thrown the key out of the letterbox. So why are we in this prison that we've built for ourselves? Well, we're in it because of our sin. It's our fault that we're in it. It's our sin that's put us in here. We've built this prison around ourselves with our sinful desires, but now we can't get out. We're enslaved by them. We're totally stuck. The theologians call this total depravity. Not that we are always as bad as we could possibly be, but that every part of us is spoilt by sin. The Confession in the Church of England's Book of Common Prayer puts it, there is no health in us. And the result is the end of verse 3. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Perhaps this is the hardest of the hard news to hear in these verses. Elsewhere, the Bible uses the word hell to describe the place where we deserve to experience that anger, that wrath. Don't we find it difficult to think that God might be angry with his creation? Even if that anger is not the kind of fly-off-the-handle, malicious, capricious anger, or the kind of anger we might have experienced in the past from, uh, from, from somebody in our lives, it's not that kind of thing. It's righteous, holy, sinless anger at sin. But even so, many of us find that hard to stomach. But actually, when we think about it, do any of us operate in the way that we sometimes think God ought to behave? Because do we not cry out when we see injustice? Particularly if we or, or those we love are the victims. Or we see on the news, we see violence on our streets or in the Middle East or wherever it might be. You know, do we not demand for those responsible to be caught, for justice to be done? Do we not hate the thought of wrongdoing being left unpunished? Except, of course, when it's us who have committed the offence. The thing is, if God behaved like that, then there would be no justice. Because how would it work? Well, either he would forgive everyone for everything, including the worst of tyrants and murderers, or he'd set a kind of artificial barrier above which he would forgive, but below which he would punish. And then, and then as we sort of work that through, as we think about it, well, where would that barrier go? The most logical place, we usually feel, is kind of just below me. You know what I mean. So, you know, of course we're not perfect. You know, we'd be, we'd be happy to admit that. But the, the bar, put the bar, you know, it needs to be somewhere underneath me, because I'm not that bad, we, like, we, we want to tell ourselves. But it needs to be somewhere so as to exclude, you know, the murderer, the rapist, the tyrant. But the thing is, well, what if the murderer grew up surrounded by violence? How should justice be done then? You know, there's cultures and codes and expectations of behaviour. They're all different around the world. You know, who gets to decide what is acceptable and what is below the line and what is unforgivable? The problem is this, you see. Our view of justice and how God ought to operate is tainted by the very mindset that verses 1 to 3 outline. Because would you trust a criminal with the running of a trial? Would you trust a criminal with the oversight of a justice system? That's what we're asking for when we imply that we know better than God 
on how his justice should work. Actually, the only judge who is perfect and untainted by sin and partiality, and the only judge who can be trusted to judge with absolute fairness is God. Can't trust us to do that. The problem is that when we ask him to step into the world and end the injustice that we see around us, we find him pointing at each of our hearts and saying, guilty. We all fall short. We are by nature objects of wrath. That then is the diagnosis of the human problem. Not just sick, but dead in our transgressions and sins. But then once we've got the diagnosis straight, we're ready to hear the treatment plan. So secondly, verses 4 to 7, our gracious saviour, not assisting but accomplishing. And what we see now is that God in his grace does not merely assist us in doing it ourselves, but entirely accomplishes and achieves our salvation for us. So verse 4, but... Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. That word but changes everything, doesn't it? The focus changes now from from us and our inability to God and his ability, his power to change the whole situation. How does Paul describe what God has done? He says, he made us alive with Christ. This is extraordinary for two reasons. One is that we're described as being seated in the heavenly realms in Christ. The other is that this is viewed as a past event. Remember, we saw how Jesus has been raised by God's power from death and is seated now in the heavenly realms. And and now we see that we are where Christ is and we are in Christ. In other words, we are benefiting from what he has done. We are sharing in his victory all because of him and nothing to do with us. Do you notice Paul still emphasises that? Verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he raised us up, he gave us life that we do not deserve. It is by grace you have been saved, he says. So we are, from God's perspective, he sees us, and he sees us with Jesus, already raised up. It's a Something that is then a past event. It's something that's already happened. It's not assistance for the present. You know, come on, Christian, if you work really hard, you can climb the ladder and make it to the heavenly realms. No, this is something we've already been given. It's been accomplished in the past. It's certain. But why did God do do this then? Verse 7. In order... That in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Why is he doing this? He did it because he wants, us to, he, he wants to put on a show for the cosmic powers about what? Well, about his grace. Now, at first glance, you might think that sounds a little bit egotistical of God. You know, he wants to show off the incomparable riches of his grace, he wants to show off his kindness. But actually this is really good news because it's a further guarantee that God is not going to change his mind because his reputation is on the line. So he's not just just doing it, he's not just looking at us and thinking, I'm going to help you, I'm going to 
I'm going to save you. And then we're thinking, yeah, but is he, is he really going to finish the deal? Because he might just forget about me. No, he's, he's, he's got a much bigger purpose in mind, which is a display of his glory and grace in the universe. Now, you might have heard me um, tell this story before, but one of the great things about living in the age of Twitter is the effect that it has on customer service. So what happens if there's something wrong with one of the bags in a multi-pack of kettle chips? Just to pick a random example from life experience. Say, say, there's, a, there's, say there's a hole in the seal in one of those bags. You know what happens when that happens? Have you ever had a pack of the crisps like that and you realise you know, it hasn't been sealed properly and that it's, all the crisps have gone stale? And, uh, you know, well, what, 15 or 20 years ago... Um, if you're sort of old enough to remember that, uh, it pr- probably nothing much happens at that point in the age before Twitter. You know, you might, you might ring them up and, and complain and you might get a, a refund if you're, if you're lucky. Uh, but now, and, you know, speaking from personal experience, if you complain on Twitter, where everyone can see, it's completely different. What do you find? You see they'll be falling over themselves to be seen to be taking your problems seriously. And before you know it, there'll be a massive box of every possible flavour of kettle chips arriving on your doorstep. See, what the point is, Twitter means it's all public and their reputation is on the line. And even when it's just little old me with one bag of crisps that's gone wrong in the production process, out of millions of bags of crisps that get made every day or whatever it is, they're not going to risk ignoring that and becoming known for poor customer service. Now you might say, well, it's just a crisp manufacturer and they've got their own cynical ends in mind, haven't they? But if that's how a manufacturer of crisps behaves when their reputation is on the line, how much more the God of the universe? Remember that future day that we heard about in in chapter 1, verse 10, when all things in heaven and on earth are united under Christ. Part of the point of that day... Paul is saying in verse 7, is for God to display his grace and for him to get all the glory because this salvation plan from beginning to end has been about him and not about us. And so, Paul concludes, this is all about grace. Verses 8 to 10. Grace, which means that we are saved not by good works, but for good works. So thirdly, our great salvation, not by good works, but for good works. Look at verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. What is Paul emphasising as he finishes this section? He's saying we were dead, we were made alive, so we have been saved by grace through faith. And this not from yourselves. The word this there in the original language applies to the whole of the previous part of that sentence. Not just the faith he's talking about, it's the whole thing. What does it mean? saying grace received through faith is not from yourselves, it is a gift. We are saved by grace alone. What do we bring? Nothing. What do we receive? Everything. Salvation is 
a gift. And if it is a totally free gift, undeserved, unearned, well, actually, that very often results in a kind of objection because it sounds like a license to live how, how you like. And it's a common objection when people hear the gospel explained. Doesn't that just mean we can sin as much as we like then if, if, you know, if it's all forgiven, if, we, if it's just we're saved by grace? I don't know how you'd answer that, but the, the German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer realised this wasn't just a theoretical problem with how the gospel is explained. You see, a wrong understanding of this affected how the Protestant churches in Nazi Germany responded to Hitler and his regime, in that many of them did absolutely nothing. And Bonhoeffer talked about how they were demonstrating cheap grace. He talked about how they were showing grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. In other words, you Christians who are just rolling over and letting Hitler get on with it, he was saying, you say you're saved by grace, but this is just giving you a license to say, well, we're all right, you know, we're going to heaven doesn't really matter what we do, so we'll stay quiet while Hitler rampages. What Bonhoeffer was getting at is that grace isn't some abstract principle by which God forgives us. You know how, uh, how often Christians talk about being saved by grace? That's, that's what we say, isn't it? And, 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 you know, I'm, sh- I'm not sure so-and-so understands grace we say. You need to be motivated by grace in your Christian life. And it sounds like this kind of substance This thing which means we get out of jail free and then we can just get on with our lives. Well, the point Bonhoeffer was making is that grace is just shorthand for God giving himself in Christ. You can't have grace without Jesus Christ, he says. And that's what Paul is saying here in verse 10. He's saying we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. We are in Christ. We are joined to him with good works to do in him. See, if you just talk about grace in the abstract, you miss out the whole bit about being in Christ because God's grace is given to us in Christ. And we are now, as a result, we are in Christ and we do the good works he has created for us in him. Now, those good works have nothing to do with salvation. We have been saved they're to do with living out our new identity. Think of a caterpillar. You know, a caterpillar can't fly. If there was a flying exam for caterpillars, it would fail. But once it has transformed and been given a new identity as a butterfly, well, living out its new identity means flying. And it doesn't do that in order to kind of become a butterfly, to, dem- you know, to, to sort of prove that it's worthy of being a butterfly. It does it because it is a butterfly, because it's been given a new ability to fly. See, that is why Christians serve. Not to be saved, but because we are saved and, be- and we are now in Christ in the heavenly realms. What is true of him is true of us. So start living like that. And so if someone says they're trusting in Jesus but they're not living like that, then it's a good question to ask, well, why? What's missing here? 
That's what Paul is saying. So, so what then? Paul, Paul's application in verses 8 to 10 is, is simple. It's this. No boasting. Do you see that? Verse 9. Boasting spoils our relationship with God because boasting focuses on me and my performance. We boast, maybe to, to others, maybe just in our own hearts. If things are going well in our Christian lives, then, then we boast of that. Think, oh, you know, oh, doing quite well as a Christian today, actually. We boast of victories over sin and temptation. And the flip side of that is that when things have not been going so well, we despair. Think, well, how could God ever accept somebody like me? You know, I'm a terrible Christian. I'm a terrible person. Now, that might not sound like boasting, but it goes with boasting because the assumption is that we ought to be able to boast and we can't, so we despair instead. Can you see? Boasting and despair are kind of two sides of the same coin. So if we find our lives swaying between feeling great about our Christian lives and feeling miserable, it may just be that we're looking to boast in ourselves rather than resting in God's grace in Christ. And his grace means we are free to serve and we're free to fail. So when we're asked to serve at church or at work or at home in some way, you know, do, sometimes do we think, well, I, I know, I'm, I'm not good enough to do that. I couldn't possibly do that. I need to wait until I'm doing better as a Christian to do that. Well, it, it may be that actually we're still pursuing a, a boasting mentality in our Christian life. You know, we want to be able to point to things in us that make us worthy to serve Jesus rather than simply relying on Jesus. We've seen already in Ephesians that church is a scale model of eternity. So do you remember we said, you know, if you don't like church, you're going to hate heaven. But actually the same is true also of serving because that is what we've been saved for. This is what we'll be doing for eternity. So if you don't like serving, you're going to hate heaven. So start now. If you're not yet trusting in Jesus, realise that no amount of doing good things, no amount of serving, no amount of doing the religious stuff will make the slightest difference to how God sees you. That's what we can see in these verses. That's what we've seen this evening. Naturally, we are dead. We need to throw ourselves on God's mercy, verse 4. That is our only hope. We need to receive what he offers simply as a gift. We need to receive it by faith. But if you are trusting in Jesus, if you're following him today, resolve never to lose sight of how glorious this salvation is. Realise that we've been saved not for boasting in ourselves or for despairing about ourselves, but for living for Jesus, because it's all about him. Living for him, serving him in everything we do, because we are in him, united to him, in the heavenly realms with him. Even when we were dead in our sins, he's raised us there to be with him forever. That is how we find our place in God's master plan. Let's pray.
Father God, thank you for showing us how we take our place in your plan. That it's nothing to do with us or our worthiness. When we're tempted to pride, we pray that you would humble us and show us afresh our sin so that we can come again to Jesus and to his death for us and find your grace. When we're tempted to despair at our weakness and failure and our sin, we pray again that we would look not at ourselves but as our saviour. And that we would be assured of your great love for us. Thank you that you are rich in mercy. And so even when we were dead, if we're trusting in Jesus, you have made us alive. So that it is by grace that we have been saved. We praise you for that, Father. Pray that we would live that in our lives day by day. Amen.